webinar series um, which is considering the progressive revelation of God through the scriptures and I don't intend to, to go as slow as we have been through the whole series but Genesis of course is laying the foundations for the rest of the Bible so this is perhaps why I'm struggling to make any speed but obviously we won't be able to go at this speed through the whole the whole, the whole um, series we will speed up and take bigger chunks but I don't want to lose any of these foundational truths because we're going to need them as we go through the rest of the Bible so we're still with Noah um, coming, to, coming to the end of Noah now but I want this evening to talk about the covenant of common grace or the covenant that was made with Noah and we read about this in uh, Genesis 8 verse 20 to chapter 9 verse 17. So let's read those verses beginning from Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, harvest and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hands are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you. I have given you all things. Verse 4. But flesh with the life thereof which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man, shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the, of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. For I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
and the bow, the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will, I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And may God bless his word to us. So, um, in chapter 8 of Genesis, and verses 18 and 19, we read of Noah and his family and every creature leaving the ark and entering into this new world. And this marks a big turning point in history. Uh, Peter in his second epistle described his transition uh, from the old world before the flood and the new world that the, these people and these creatures entered. In chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 and 2, Peter, we've read, we've read often, read it again. Peter says, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. So looking at that verse, history is divided, as we've said before, between the world that then was and the heavens and the earth that are now, the world we are in now. And all that we've studied so far in this series has related to the world that then was. And that first world was itself divided into two periods which we have studied. We studied the period before sin came into the world, when man was under the covenant of works, and we've studied the period after sin came into the world up until the flood, judgment. We have seen in this series that as, a, as man failed to keep the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, God introduced the covenant of grace, mm -hmm. the promise he made in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And this, as we've said, is, was the inauguration of the gospel or special grace. The promise that a holy seed would be preserved. And out of that line, that line of promise, would come a champion who would suffer himself, but ultimately would deal a death blow to Satan and to his hordes. Yet we saw, didn't we, in previous studies how the world grew worse and worse. Um, yet human life continued despite the, the common curse that God put upon the world. God introduced something which we've studied already, the principle of common grace. He introduced the principle of judicial justice after Cain murdered Abel. And uh, he said, Whoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So the world wasn't left in anarchy. There was a system of justice. And man was allowed to live. Man was allowed to prosper, to build cities, to invent, to keep cattle and make music and and yet, man became so sinful that it became impossible for the seed of the woman, the people of God, to dwell alongside the ungodly. And the promise of the, that holy seed had to be preserved, had to be kept. But man's wickedness was so great 
that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we discovered, didn't we, in Scripture that God determined to destroy man and beast. But Noah, acting as a type of Christ, was chosen by God to be the saviour of the world. That because of Noah's righteousness, he was chosen at the typological level to be God's righteous servant, whose obedience God accounted as the ground of the salvation of his house. And last time we studied how in uh, Noah's mission that he was given to build an ark of salvation, Noah prefigured the work of Christ himself, the one who delivers from the wrath of God and delivered from delivered his people from satanic power. And as it says in Hebrews 11 verse 7, Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Last time we spent most of the time studying the actual ark itself, how it was constructed, how it was a symbol, it was symbolic of the cosmic house of God or the, the temple of God and that it was a picture and we get this from Peter himself in his epistles that, that the ark was a picture of the new heavens and the new earth the ultimate um, theocratic kingdom of peace and righteousness where literally the lion laid down with the lamb in that ark all was peace and all was righteousness and during the period of the flood and the typological kingdom conditions within the ark which foreshadowed and represent the new heavens and the new earth, we said that the principle of common grace ended, it was suspended. Common grace was not needed, it won't be needed in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. At the end of time it will cease. And it was suspended during the ark conditions because the ark was a type of the final consummation where there is no need for common grace what is the purpose of common grace well we studied it previously the main purpose is to ensure the preservation of the elect until all are safely gathered in well of course that's not necessary when you're in uh, the consummation of the kingdom of course, we're still only talking in terms of a type with the, the ark. But what transpired during the flood and within the ark was a, a sign, as I've said, of the conclusion of redemptive history, history when, when the earth is destroyed by fire, the new heaven and the new earth are ushered in, common grace will come to an end. The elect will be fully gathered in. And we saw last time how Noah, the ark, the flood were all symbolic of the final judgment and the final state. And yet now as we come to, uh, to uh, Noah and these creatures leaving the ark and entering into the new world, it becomes very obvious very quickly, and we'll see this much next time, that it really was only a sign. It really was only symbolic. Noah wasn't as righteous as all that. Um, it was only a type. The world into which Noah and his house left the ark to enter was not the eternal kingdom. It was a very real world. And yet some significant um, real, none as it were, non-typological things had been achieved as a result of the flood. The flood really had terminated that wicked old world. It was gone. The world that now is appeared. We're in it. And the human race in general 
and vitally the covenant people of God which will contain that the seed from which the Messiah would come the covenant people of God the seed of the woman was preserved however this seed this gospel promise will need now to be preserved in this new world the world that now is it is now necessary in the new world for the seed of the woman, the church, the elect, to be preserved and for um, Congress to be reinstated. The patterns of sinfulness and rebellion will be repeated in the new world. They were terrible in the old world. They're going to come back in the new world. The powers of Antichrist reappear. And the world once again divides into the seed of the woman and the seed of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, so the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So common grace needs to be reintroduced in order to preserve the world, to ensure that life continues, so that all God's Sheep through all the centuries of time will be gathered in. And so tonight our focus is on this re-establishment of the common grace order after the flood, which is very similar to the one before the flood, but it's not totally identical. The main difference between the common grace order before the flood and the common grace order after the flood is that in the new world common grace is formalised through a covenant that was not the case in the old world in the old world the principle was simply introduced when Cain murdered Abel but in the new world common grace is formally a covenant. This covenant of common grace, or this covenant with Noah, is the covenant of common grace. It's a live, present covenant. We're still under it. We're still in it as we speak. And it is presented in, and we've read it tonight, this covenant of common grace with Noah is presented in three parts. And it's got an introduction in, verse, in chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. It's got a central section in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And it's got a conclusion in chapter 9, 8 to 17. And I'll, I'll go through this. So the introduction and the conclusion contain the guarantee of order within nature. We'll read it again in a second. In the introduction, this promise of order within nature is, we are told, coming initially within the heart of God himself. It is God talking to himself in response to the sacrifice that Noah made at the altar when he and all those with him, man and beast, left the ark. And in the conclusion, verses 8 to 17, what God said in his heart, what God said to himself, is formalised in a covenant. And God provides a sign of the covenant. And the central section presents the program, the cultural program of mankind with certain regulations. Now I'll go through that more little slowly. But before we do, I want, I want it's important to understand again that this covenant, often called the Noahic covenant, or the covenant with Noah, let's say Noahic covenant at the same time, that this Noahic covenant is, is not a covenant 
of redemption. It's not a covenant of redemptive grace, of special grace. It's not a saving covenant. It is, a, it is common grace. Common meaning, it applies to all humans, whether they're Christians or not. And it's grace because it is graceful. It's God um, being kind, being loving. But it's not his saving love. It is common grace. And this covenant was is common to elect and non-elect. It's of grace but not saving grace. It's also too important to note that although the revelation of this covenant came to Noah and his family and the covenant in a way is made with them, in this context, Noah represents the whole of mankind in a very similar way as Adam represented all of mankind. This mirrors, as I say, the disclosure of common grace and curse in Genesis 3, 16-19, which we studied before. And so in this Noahic covenant, the covenant includes not just mankind, in actual fact, but other living creatures. Well, that proves that it can't be um, special grace. It is a covenant not just with humanity, but with animals who will also depend on stability in nature to flourish and to survive. In um, chapter 9, verse 10, at the beginning it says, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you. It's an amazing thing today that God has a covenant, a live covenant, with with animals, with, our, with the animals that we keep. There's a covenant in place that God uh, promises to maintain order within nature. And in fact, in verse 13, this covenant is described as being between God and the earth. It says, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So this covenant ensures the unbroken continuance of nature and order in culture through all the generations until the end of the world that now is. That's the point of this covenant. And that's the theme of the introduction and the conclusion of this covenant. That despite the evil of mankind, the, God even says in verse 21 of chapter 8, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, yet the Lord said in his heart, I will not curse the ground any more for man's sake, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, sea time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. You see, all the covenants of God, and there are many, and we're going to go through them in this series, they all start in his heart. This is not, in the first place, a legalistic thing. All God's covenant love comes from his heart. Yes, he formalizes them, in formal covenants, but that's not where it begins. You see, God looked upon the earth and, and he smelt the sacrifice that Noah gave and, and his heart went out in compassion and love to the whole world. And then in uh, chapter 9, 11 and verse 15, we get the formal establishment of the covenant. It says, and I, in verse 11 of chapter 9, and I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And then in verse 15, And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And as a pledge or a token of his commitment to this, God gives the sign of the covenant. He gives the sign of the rainbow. This is the, the special sign of the, of the covenant. I do set my bow, verse 19 of chapter 9, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So we have, as I say, beginning in God's heart, then he formalises the covenant, and then he gives a sign of the covenant. And in verse 15, the purpose of this covenant sign, this rainbow, is explained. In verse 15 it says, And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Well, this is amazing, isn't it? You see, we often think of a rainbow being given to remind us of the covenant. But what the scripture actually says is that the covenant sign is given by God so that He, God, will remember. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you. And obviously this is, um, I can never say this word, but this is this word, this is anthropomorphic, because we know God doesn't forget anything. But this language is used, is designed to emphasize the faithfulness of God. God says, I will set a covenant sign in the sky, and when I see it, I will remember the covenant I have made with nature, with man and all of nature, never again to destroy the world by flood. And it may be, I don't know, I'm surmising that the, the rainbow sign appeared to Noah at the, very, at the very time that the covenant was made. But whether that was the case or not, we're not told. The point is, is that on every occasion of its appearance, the appearance of the rainbow, God will see and God will remember the covenant he has made with all of the world. Seems rather uh, obvious in a way to us with all this passing of time. But just imagine if you were, say, the first generation in the new world. Um, you may be one of those who come off the ark and it begins to rain again. Maybe it's a heavy storm. And uh, you're thinking, is this rain going to stop? Is the world going to flood again? But, but then you see the rainbow and you remember and you remember that God has promised that although there had been a flood, there may be deluge in the future, but it will never be the same. The world will never be destroyed. God promises that the world will not end by flood. It's significant um, scripturally that the sign of the rainbow was in the form of a multicoloured bow. Because in scripture the war bow uh, the the war bow is a picture of, of either a king being angry or a king being at peace. When the, the bow is raised vertically and taut, the king is at war, but when the bow is horizontal and loose, the king is at peace. And in scripture, God's bow is often mentioned and it's associated with his wrath. Uh, and we, we have verses about how lightning are lightning is his arrow. And just some some verses just to and there are many these are just a few, but 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 42, God says, I will make mine arrows drunk with blood. There, God is at war. Psalm 7, God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will not wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Psalm 18, 14, Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Zechariah 9, 14, And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. So you see the rainbow sign is the sign of a bow. It's the sign not of a taut bow, not of a bow ready for war, but of a loose, of a relaxed bow. Because God is saying, I'm not at war with mankind. Judgment is deferred. And yet, I still hold a bow. Judgment will come. But at the moment, it is suspended. Judgment is deferred. And God remembers every time the rainbow is in the sky, he says, he remembers that he is not at war with man. Judgment is suspended for now. And he, God is, is really serious about this. God is faithfully committed to this covenant. He's so committed that, and we can't go through all the verses, just one, but quite a few times in Scripture, God uses uh, this covenant with Noah as an analogy of how important what he's, how important the promise he's making is in other scenarios. I'll give you one example. Here he's making a, re a promise of redemption to man and in Isaiah 54, uh, in verses 8 to 10. And he references the covenant with Noah. I just read it, don't need to touch it. It says, In a little wrath, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. You see what God is doing? He's saying, you can rely on my promise so much because I'm making an analogy to the covenant I made with Noah. It's that cast iron that I will keep my promise. The Lord describes this covenant in, in verse 16 of chapter 9 as an everlasting covenant. In, in verse 12 of 9, he describes it as being for perpetual generations. You see, God is so committed and serious to this. And I'll, at the end, just explain why I'm emphasizing that. As long as the earth remains, this world is preserved by God's forbearance. His bow is loose. And yet, as Peter says, this world is reserved for final judgment. So that, that, that really was a summary of the introduction to the covenant and the conclusion to the covenant. In the middle, though, like a sandwich, we have verses... Uh, 1 to 7 of chapter 9, the central section of the covenant. And we won't spend a lot of time on this aspect, but this contains the terms of the common grace world, which, like those found in Genesis 3 16 to 19, uh, are God's common blessing for man to enjoy creative fruitfulness in the propagation of the race dominion over the earth and provision of sustenance. We, we read, we read the, uh, the earlier, very similar word to what we read earlier in Genesis 
be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Um, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, and so on. And we'll go through it a bit more in a minute. This is God's common blessing for man to enjoy under this covenant. Not just for the elect, but for elect and non-elect. It is the mandate, the cultural mandate, almost identical, although it's not quite identical, to the one given to Adam and Eve. Man's dominion, first of all, is over the animal realm, because all men are endowed with the dignity of God-like lordship over the creatures of the earth. Um, the family, the importance of the family is emphasised, where it's none elect and elect are to produce children, they are to have families, they are to populate the earth. It's a very ungodly thing to keep emphasising uh, not having children and reducing population. That is totally the opposite of what the Bible teaches. It says fill the earth with with people from whom the elect will come. Um, the state uh, is part of this common grace order we read. Um, the old world came, voiced the need for a system of justice, and God put a mark on him. And in chapter 9, verse 5 here, murder is described as, as a Cain-like act of killing a brother. Murder, murder is fratricide. It's a killing of a, of a fellow brother, like Cain killed Abel. Verse 5 of chapter 9, At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. And then chapter 9, verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now these words have never been revoked. I know people have different views on capital punishment, but do you know, in my mind, there's nothing more biblical. These are God's words. Human life is so precious because man is made in the image of God. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. There's nothing worse than anarchy, dear friends. It's far worse than dictatorship. God doesn't insist on democracy or any particular form of government. You can have a, uh, wicked democracies. And you can have more godly, different types of government. God, God's concern is order. God's concern is order and justice and peace so that the gospel can be preached and the elect can be gathered in. And so this mandate authorises the state to punish the crime, particularly of murder, with the sword taking life for life because man is made in the image of God. So, just to recap very quickly, what we've said tonight and then just end with a thought or two. What we've said is that Noah at the altar, that altar that he made as he left the ark, represented all of mankind. God made a covenant with Noah following the compassion of his heart. And this covenant was not redemptive, it was concerned with natural life. And this covenant is still in place. It's an active covenant with all mankind and with all creatures and with the earth itself. It authorises temporal judgments through the state. It enables men, man and women to still marry and have children and to have dominion over the resources of the earth and to flourish and to prosper. It's a covenant of common grace, not special grace. And yet it serves the purposes of covenant or special grace because it perpetuates the existence of the world so that the gospel can continue to be preached.
from generation to generation. Were it not for this covenant with Noah, the world would never have lasted. There would be no people from whom, to whom to preach the gospel. The seed of a woman could not uh, continue. The line of the covenant could not continue were it not for the covenant of grace, of common grace. So although it's not a saving covenant, it subserves the covenant of grace, or the covenant of redemption. The Noahic covenant, as we'll go on to see in the future, sets the stage, gives the stability in the world for the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. The covenant with Noah is a present witness of, of general or natural revelation, the revelation of God's goodness and faithfulness. So God's grace is given in a general rather than a redemptive way to everyone and everything. That's the thing to understand. This is to everyone and everything. Even the, even the ungodly. Jesus said so. Matthew 5, 45. He said, for he maketh his son, as S-U-N, to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And I just want to end with this thought, particularly thinking maybe about Saturday and future occasions like that. The covenant of common grace tells us a lot about God's attitude towards sinful human beings from Genesis 3 verse 8 up until the last day of judgment. And we need to understand this from an evangelistic point of view. You see, what is God's stance toward unbelievers, to the ungodly, and therefore by implication, what should our stance be towards them? We need to get that right, because there's a sort of hyper-Calvinist error where um, the hyper-Calvinist says that God... Has, has no love at all in any way towards the ungodly. He has almost ignores them. They're reprobate, they're condemned and dispensed with. But what does the scripture actually say? What, what, is, this, what is God's attitude in common grace toward the ungodly? Well, let me just read one or two scriptures which, which give, give us the answer to this question. And as I read these verses, just try and detect the attitude that God has towards unbelievers. So, first of all, 2 Peter 3, verses 7 and 9, which we've read many times. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, and then skipping to verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that's God's common grace attitude. Not to say that everyone will come to repentance. It's saying that God is... Um, is not willing that any of his sheep will be lost. Not one of his elect will be lost. And that's why the world has to be preserved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.20 now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And lastly, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Just listen to God's attitude here. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, 
who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Again, it's not talking about universal salvation, but it's saying something about God's attitude to the world. You see, God engages with the world in grace, not saving grace, but in common grace. He loves the world. And out of the world he has his own, he has his church. And the world needs to be preserved. That his, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. In spite of our offences against him, God has a genuine love for sinful covenant breakers. And he's patient with us in order to save every one of his sheep. God does not cut short the life of the sinner, but gives him time to repent. Mm. No, if we don't believe that, then we're, we're, what about us? Mm. Because we were where everyone else was at one point. Mm. And that's why it's so dangerous to persist in sin until the end of life. Because that's a direful thing. Because God is giving us time to repent. But that time runs out. It's time limited. Once we draw our last breath, that opportunity is gone forever. And so evangelistically we can say to those we speak to that this covenant gives the world its order. There's a restraint upon sin. Men are sinners, but it could be an awful lot worse. Without government, without the state, without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit upon sin. We need common grace because without it there would be no freedom to preach the gospel. If man had no constraint or restraint, there would be no liberty for anyone because, as I've said, anarchy is worse than dictatorship. Unbelievers as well as believers receive many natural blessings and the kindnesses of God. And we can remind unbelievers of this. In a sense we can say to an unbeliever that God loves you. Now we need to be careful to explain. But there is a way God does love every single one of us. Not savingly, but in providence and through creation and through the covenant he made with Noah. The continuance of seasons, seed time and harvest. Law and order. Family. He loves everyone. This is why Paul can say in Romans 2 verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Paul never missed a trick. He, he, he saw that one of the great evangelistic tools and methods was reminding people of the kindness of God. The goodness of God, I should say. Because the goodness of God leads people to repentance. Paul often did this. We think of one, one occasion when he was at Lystra in a rather comical scene where um, the people in Lystra were, were coming down with an ox ready to sacrifice to him, thinking that he was a god. And Paul does his best to stop them, stop them from doing this. And he said, You should turn from these vanities to the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Listen to this, he says, Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So these are some of the things we can say to our friends, to people we speak to. Think next time in conclusion. Next time you see the rainbow, 
Um, remember that amazingly, this is a present, current, covenant sign put in the sky by God. And God sees it and God remembers his covenant with the whole earth, man and beast. Well, may God bless his word to us this evening.